Wow, I don't know about you, but uh, that song just really touches my heart. Uh, it's been a personal favorite for me and Wendy for many, many years. Uh, in fact, I was telling Matt uh, when I was when I realized he was leading worship today, I thought about calling him or texting him. Uh, this was Friday, I think. Um, and saying, hey, could you sing the Revelation song? Because it would just really mean a lot to me and Wendy. But then I thought, you know, I just, I've never done that. 35 years of ministry, I, I very seldom try to ask the worship guys to sing certain things. I leave that between them and the Lord, and it always works out beautifully. Um, and so I thought, you know, if it's meant to be, he'll sing it. And sure enough, I get here early this morning, and he's practicing before the first service, and I think, praise God. So um, my telepathy skills are working so but no thank you for that I know you you put a lot of time and prayer all of our worship team does and Mike and I often remark about how perfect the songs that that he picks are for the message and we didn't communicate it's just the Lord imagine that you know if you just get out of the way and let the Lord work it seems to go well doesn't it so well I'm excited about the message today we're going to be talking about the unveiling of Jesus Christ and uh, I want to mention here at the outset, because it kind of relates to what we're going to be talking about, uh, tomorrow I've got Leo Holman on the podcast. We actually recorded this yesterday, and what a phenomenal interview. It's uh, called What's in Store in 2024, and of course tomorrow's the first, and so I wanted to bring a guest on that uh, could really talk about, with some degree of expertise, uh, what we kind of see potentially happening in the coming year. And so I thought of uh, Leo first. He's been on the show four or five times, unbelievable uh, researcher, award-winning journalist. Uh, uh, to save people uh, from emailing me, especially those online, <clears throat> I am aware that Leo and I don't necessarily agree on everything theologically about the end times, but that's okay. I mean, uh, I joke with him all the time. I tell him, look, I'm, I'm happy to wait till we get to heaven for you to agree with me and Jesus. But in the meantime, in the meantime, he is spot on in his commentary about uh, current events and what's happening and so forth. And I just love him to death. Great heart. Uh, and so, man, what a power-packed discussion we had yesterday. Um, and so I want you to be sure, even if you're not in the habit of listening to the Not By Works podcast, make a point to listen tomorrow. It'll be posted before you get up in the morning. It posts after midnight. Uh, and, uh, and it's just kind of going to set the tone, I think, for what's coming. And then on Tuesday, I'm doing a solo podcast to kind of counteract tomorrow's podcast. I'm doing one on Tuesday on the good news in 2024. So <clears throat> lots of bad news, lots of things that should concern us and we need to be aware of and be prepared for. But yet, God is God. He's still on the throne. And there's a lot of good news that we can talk about. So I've made a list of just some encouraging things that I think will help on Tuesday. Got a lot of other great guests as we go through the week. We'll pick up our World Events Update again Wednesday with Randy and some other things. But uh, but today, uh, being December 31st, um, it just seems like this year feels unlike past years as we turn the page on the calendar. Um, I believe more than ever before, we need to keep our eyes fixed on Jesus Christ as we enter this new year. Now, as believers, we ought to be doing that all the time. The Bible tells us in Hebrews 12 that we should look unto Jesus, the author and finisher of our faith. Um, 
you know, he is the, the, the source of our eternal salvation, rescuing us from the penalty of sin when we place our faith in him. And then as believers, as a child of God, we ought to keep our eyes fixed on him every day as we're topside this earth until we either meet him in the air or we go the way of all flesh. That's really what life comes down to is seeing life from an eternal perspective, keeping your mind fixed on things above, set on things above. Our citizenship is in heaven, remembering that we're just sojourners passing through. And so as we think about this coming year, my mind went to the book of Revelation, which is uh, the unveiling of, of Christ. Uh, that's uh, what the word revelation means. I probably don't have to tell this group, but it's the Greek word apocalypsis. It literally means unveiling. The word picture is that of a, think of a sculpture, uh, and maybe the sculptor has, has worked for a long, long time on this masterpiece, and the, finally finishes, the appointed time comes to reveal it to all of his fans and the dignitaries and others are gathered around and at the appointed time they get everyone's attention and they pull off the tarp to reveal this masterpiece. Well, that's what the book of Revelation is. It's unveiling Jesus Christ in all of his glory. It is the revelation, by the way. Every now and then you'll hear people call it Revelations, uh, the last book of the Bible. When you hear that, you, you, you can tell one thing right away. They don't know the Bible because <laughs> there is no book of Revelations in the Bible, it's the revelation singular of Jesus Christ. And so I really think if we keep our eyes fixed on him as we enter this new year, it may very well be that we might see him coming in the clouds. Imagine that. Imagine being the first one to catch a glimpse of the Lord at the rapture. I mean, we'll all hear the sound, we'll see the sign, and then we'll look up, and there will be, and in an instant, in the twinkling of an eye, we'll be caught up to meet the Lord in the air. But imagine... If our eyes are fixed on him, we might be the first one. And I think that's very possible. We can't set dates. We, we don't know. But if we do what Jesus tells us to do in Matthew 16 and look at the signs of the times, it's pretty clear to me that we're getting closer than ever. Um, I've talked a lot about uh, the decade of the 2020s in, uh, in my book two books ago, uh, the timetable of the Luciferians, where for 100 years they've been targeting this timetable, even the, specifically the year 2025. Doesn't mean it's going to happen, but that's their target timetable. This decade in 2030, 2025 to 2030, to usher in the, the one world system, politically, religiously, and economically. That's their goal. Again, it doesn't mean it's going to happen because God's in charge, not them, thankfully. Um, but it certainly behooves us to, to pay attention and, and recognize that we're getting ever so close to some pretty pivotal things happening. So Revelation chapter 1 is where we're going to go. I was at a conference a few years ago, and uh, back then... Uh, different ones of my kids would travel with me because my wife was homeschooling our kids, and so she didn't always travel with me. Sometimes she did. We took the kids on the road many, many times. But for shorter trips and quick one- or two-day conferences, typically I'd take one of the older kids with me to help work the booth. At this particular conference, Morgan was uh, with me, my oldest uh, son. And, um, and we were at this conference, and one of the speakers, who was definitely not from the same framework that I'm from, during his message, he made the remark, quote, the book of Revelation has a lot of good Christology in it, end quote. And I remember looking at my son Morgan and I whispered in his ear, uh, yeah, duh, right? I mean, it's the revelation of Jesus Christ, right? Um, it's like saying that swimming pool has a lot of water in it, right? Uh, I mean, well, what, what do you think, right? And indeed, it's the unveiling of Jesus Christ. And so let's take a look at uh, just these first uh, 
verses here at, at the beginning uh, of the letter. Of course, we know it was written 95 to 96 A.D. Now, in modern times, you'll hear some modern scholars try to suggest that it was written much earlier, <clears throat> but for 2,000 years of church history, it's been known it was written 95, 96 A.D. We have Clement, early church father, Eusebius, another early church father who told us uh, that was the time frame. Plus, we know John was on the Isle of Patmos when he wrote this, and he was exiled around that time by the Roman Emperor Domitian. So there's really no question about the date of Revelation. I remember attending uh, a debate uh, several years ago at the pre-trib conference where I've been privileged to speak several times, a big pre-tribulational conference, biggest one in the country every year. And there was a debate this year featured at that particular year's conference, and it was between Mark Hitchcock and uh, Hank Hanegraaff on the date of Revelation. And I later had the chance to spend a day with Hank Hanegraaff. This was before he kind of went off the reservation and theologically. And I was with him in his office all day, and uh, he knew I was a member of the pre-trib study group, and he said, he commented about that debate, and he goes, yeah, Mark Hitchcock pretty much mopped the floor with me. And, and he was right. Mark did. Mark was defending the 95-96 date of uh, Revelation. Hitchcock was trying to suggest it was earlier, but no question about the date. So it's the last book of the Bible, the last book uh, in the inspired Word of God, you know, written over 1,500 years, 66 books in the inspired Word of God, um, uh, 39 in the Old Testament, 27 in the New Testament, and the Bible tells a story, a plan of, of, of human history and creation history. It has a beginning and it has an end. The Bible begins with, in the beginning, and yet so many people, in spite of that, ignore the end. We don't do that with anything else. We stay for the whole movie, especially when you pay $1,000 per ticket these days. Uh, we don't read part of a book and put it down. We, we like to know the end. But with the Bible, for some reason, a lot of people could care less about the ending. But it comes full circle uh, to the new heavens and the new earth and when Christ comes back to make all things new. And so that's what this book, this, the book of Revelation is about, the return of Christ. The New Testament starts with the Gospels, one of which was written by John, the same one who, under the inspiration of the Spirit, wrote Revelation. And it begins with the story of the birth and life and ministry of Christ. But then Revelation, at the end of the first century, God tells us about the second coming of Christ. So we have both the first advent and the second advent of Christ. And it talks about all of the details that will be immediately preceding the return of Christ. Chapter 6 to 18 of Revelation are all about the tribulation period and that seven-year period that Daniel uh, talks about extensively uh, that will you know, lead up to the climactic uh, triumphant return uh, of Christ. And so the, the book of Revelation talks about the future kingdom when uh, things will not always be the way they are today. We live in an age where Satan is the prince of the power of the air. He's the god of this age. The whole world is under the sway of the wicked one. There's a cosmic battle going on, and Satan is wreaking havoc on this earth, both on humanity as he comes to kill, steal, and destroy, like a, a roaring lion seeking whom he may devour, but also on creation. Uh, you know, every, everywhere we look, we see the signs of, of sin and the fall of man and the curse of sin all over the globe. Remember when Satan approached God to ask him about Job, God said, where'd you come from? He said, I come from to and fro on the earth. This is his playground. But someday, as the Bible promises and the book of Revelation tells us, Christ, the King of Kings, the eternal Son of God, is going to come back and take rightful possession of this earth uh, that is His and make all things new. 
And so I think as we look at the uh, onset of a new year, especially with all that's going on in 2024, we've got uh, an election, or should I say a selection. Uh, we've got, uh, we've got the, the uh, Trump trials and all the circus that's going on with that. We've got multiple wars heating up all across the country. We've got more troops over in the South China Sea and the Mediterranean Sea and elsewhere than ever before. We've got economy on life support. And I'm not trying to be, you know, a downer here. I mean, I'm just stating the obvious. I mean, even the mainstream news is now parroting a lot of this type of, uh, of stuff. So, you know, um, uh, you know, just because I'm paranoid doesn't mean people really aren't following me, right? I mean, this could really be uh, the year. We don't know that, uh, but the whole point of what, what I want to look at this morning is to remind us that in good times and bad, no matter what happens, we want to keep our eyes fixed on the Lord Jesus Christ. And what better place to turn than the book uh, of Revelation? So I see in these uh, five verses here four foundational facts about Christ. In other words, who is this Christ that John is unveiling exactly? I mean, so many people the world over know about Christ, but do they really know him? That's the question. The book of Revelation ends with the great white throne judgment, at which time many people will hear those terrible, terrible words, depart from me, I never, what, knew you. So, Right off the bat, we want to make sure as you listen to this message and we look at these passages of Scripture, do you know the Lord? Has there been a time in your life when you've placed your faith in Jesus Christ and Him alone as the only one who can forgive your sin and give you the gift of eternal life? He said, I'm the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. Right? He told Nicodemus, a, a leading religious Jew, a member of the Sanhedrin, just a, I mean, if anybody dotted his I's and crossed his T's, it was Nicodemus. And Jesus said, unless you're born from above, you'll never see the kingdom of heaven. You've got to be spiritually reborn. How do you do that? By faith. We're justified by faith before a holy God. We're all sinners, born dead in our trespasses and sins. We need a Savior. We need someone to, to give us the new birth. And we receive that new birth on one condition. More than 160 times, the New Testament tells us very plainly, unambiguously, unequivocally, you have to trust in Jesus Christ and Him alone for salvation. And when you do that, in that punctiliar moment in time when faith meets the gospel, in that instant, you're passed from death to life, become born again, shall never face judgment, are eternally secure, names written in the Lamb's book of life, justified before a holy God, reconciled as no longer an enemy with God, and so many other things that happen instantaneously. So has there been a time in your life when you've done that? That's number one. If there is, then you know the Lord positionally. You'll never have to worry about hearing those horrible words, I never knew you. But there's another kind of knowledge that the Bible talks about, and that's experiential knowledge. For those who already know the Lord positionally by faith, uh, do you know him more intimately? Do you know him deeply? The Apostle Paul, for example, in, in Philippians chapter 3, verse 10, talks about how he wanted to know the Lord and the power of his resurrection and the fellowship of his sufferings. He wanted to know him more intimately. Jesus was talking to Philip in the upper room discourse in John 14, and he, he said to Philip, have I been with you all this time and you still don't know me? Talking about experiential knowledge. Philip was a believer. He was saved. Paul certainly was a believer. He was saved. But there's a deeper knowledge, and I hope that as we talk about these four foundational facts about Christ, if you already know the Lord, that, 
maybe this will drive you even into a more intimate, close relationship with the Lord. Because now more than ever, we need to keep our eyes fixed on Him. There are going to be a lot of distractions, a lot of lies. Satan is the a liar and the father of lies. And his Luciferian elite that are running this world are all about deception. Jesus warned that the closer we get to His return, deception will increase. The Apostle Paul, in the last letter that he wrote before he was martyred, in fact, most scholars think it was just days before he was martyred, he said, evil men and imposters will get worse and worse, deceiving and being deceived, 2 Timothy 3.13. So now more than ever, we need to keep our eyes fixed on the truth. Jesus said, I'm the way, the truth, and the life, so that we can identify uh, what's false. My false prophet book is all based on 1 John 4.1 that says, uh, Test the spirits, right, uh, so that you're not, uh, not deceived, right? Because many false prophets have gone out into this world. So four foundational facts about Christ. This will help us really, I think, reinforce what we know or should know about Christ already. Number one, his sovereign identity. His sovereign identity. If we look at verse 4, verses 4 and 5, the first part of verse 5, uh, this section begins with John's salutation. His opening remarks, if you will. And he says, John, to the seven churches which are in Asia. So John sent this whole book, the whole letter of Revelation, the whole last book of the Bible, to seven churches, literal historical churches that he then mentions in chapters 2 and 3. Uh, he, he, the Lord Jesus actually sends a letter to each of these seven historical churches. Uh, and they were in the Roman province of Asia within about 100 miles of Ephesus. And what does he say? He starts out by saying, grace to you and peace. Grace to you and peace. The words grace and peace perfectly reiterate our standing as a Christian before God and our ongoing experience. Grace, of course, speaks of God's attitude toward us. It's the free gift. That's how we get saved. We can't earn it. We can't be good enough. We can't do anything to deserve it. It's a free gift gift absolutely 100% totally free nothing in my hand I bring simply to the cross I cling if you think you earned your standing before a holy God with one ounce of your own merit then there's a good chance you're not saved because saving faith is exclusive faith not faith plus good works or faith plus baptism or faith plus repentance of sins or faith plus forsaking your sins or faith plus doing a u-turn or faith plus surrendering your life it's simple confidence or assurance in Jesus Christ, that he alone is, has the power to save you and give you eternal life. That's what faith means. So grace is God's attitude toward us. Peace is then our resulting standing before God if we've received his grace by faith and, and our experience of that peace ongoing. You know, there's a certain peace that we can have in unsettling times like this that an unbeliever simply cannot have. If I was an unbeliever, I would be terrified right now. I'm scared enough as it is in my weakness and in my flesh, right? And that's why I was drawn to this passage, and that's why we need to stay rooted in the Word of God like never before in this coming year. But if I was an unbeliever, I would have no place to turn. What are you going to hope in, right? FEMA? <laughs> the government? The president? Your city council? Who are you going to hope in, right? So grace and peace, and then from who? From him who is and who was and who is to come. This is 
describing God the Father. You see this again, you see it in chapter, in chapter 1, verse 8. You see it in other places as well. But here at the outset, John mentions all three persons of the eternal Godhead. And he starts with God the Father, the one who is, who was, and who is to come. And from the seven spirits, notice spirits is capitalized there. Uh, that's a proper translation because it's not uncommon for the Holy Spirit, the third person of the Trinity, the eternal Godhead, to be referred to with this sense of the number seven, of the, the uh, number of perfection and fullness. You see it several times throughout Revelation, particularly in chapters 4 and 5. You also see it in several Old Testament books like Isaiah and Zechariah. So the seven spirits who are before his throne is the Holy Spirit. And then he goes on and says, and from Jesus Christ. Now, normally when you reference the Trinity, you see it, Father, Son, Holy Spirit, right? Uh, Holy Spirit's the third person. But here, John reverses that order a little bit and puts Jesus Christ last because he is the subject of the book. He's prominent. He's front and center. It's all about him. It's the revelation of Jesus Christ. And he tells us here in verse 5 about Jesus Christ. He's the faithful witness. He's the source of what John's about uh, to reveal. He is, uh, he both gives the revelation and is the revelation, and it is reliable. In fact, the book of Revelation at the very end has Jesus Christ coming back, as we said, the second coming, and he has a name written on him called Faithful and True. In chapter 6 of Revelation, the Antichrist comes on the scene, also riding a white horse, but he's the deceiver. He's the imposter. He's the fake. But you come to the end of Revelation, it's the real deal, faithful and true. So he's the faithful witness. He's the firstborn from the dead, a reference to his resurrection. Uh, firstborn of the resurrection, his historic resurrection that, that also promises all believers who die in the Lord to have a resurrection as well. And then he's the ruler over the kings of the earth. I love this. We just sang about the kings of the earth. Um, and this, of course, is what Christ is coming back to do, to reign and to rule. In Psalm chapter 2, David uh, prophetically talks about Christ's rule. And in that famous psalm, you've heard me reference it a lot. It's, it's a key proof text for my Spirit of the Antichrist series. You see the kings of the earth, little k, and all of the rulers on the earth conspiring together with Satan to try to take over the world. David tells us they're trying to show up, uh, to throw off the, the cords of God's control. Satan has control issues. He wants to control the world, but God's the ultimate controller of the world. But David goes on to say in that psalm that Jesus Christ is the true king, and he's going to rule over all the kings of the earth. In fact, he says all the kings and rulers of the earth ought to kiss the ring of Christ. In the ancient Near East, that was a symbol of total surrender and submission to the one who has rightful rule. And we're going to see in a moment how the book of Revelation calls Jesus the Almighty, the, the, the one true ruler. So he's the faithful witness, the firstborn from the dead, the ruler of the kings of the earth. His sovereign identity. When you think about Jesus, and we may see him face to face this year, wouldn't that be something? Think about his sovereignty, his power, that he's outside of time, space, and matter. He's not beholden to circumstance. He's not beholden to happenstance. He is outside of all that. 
And, and we learn a lot more about who Jesus is throughout the New Testament. For example, Jesus himself, when the Pharisees confronted him, as they often did, and, and, and accused him of, of lying, they said, your witness is not true. You bear witness of yourself, but your witness is not true. Jesus said, well, even if I bear witness of myself, my witness is true. Notice, for I know where I came from and I know where I'm going. Only a sovereign one can say that with absolute certainty, right? Where I know where I came from and I know where I'm going. Do you know where you came from? You know, if you asked me where I came from, I'd say, yeah, I was born on a military base in Fort Eustis, Virginia, uh, Newport News, Virginia. I was born at a young age. Uh, no, I was born, I was a baby, but I, I, why do I know that? Well, I can look at my birth certificate uh, and I hear stories and I've asked my parents about it, but I wasn't there. I mean, not in the sense that I can remember it, right? Anybody remember your birth? <laughs> Tell me all about it, right? See, you know, we were too young to really know what was going on, and, and stories abound of people who lived their whole lives under one notion of their origins and their childhood, and only to find out it wasn't true. I just did a quick search on this and found one story from October of 2021 about a fellow who the headline was, quote, man discovers he was kidnapped as a baby after finding his photo on a missing kid's website. You live your whole life thinking you're Joe Johnson or whoever, and then all of a sudden you find out, no, no, I was kidnapped and raised by a different family, and my whole story is wrong. See, we're not sovereign. We're not all-knowing. So we can't say with certainty, I know where I came from. Nor can we say, we know where we're going. Now, we know eternally, if you've trusted in Christ and Him alone for salvation, where we're going. We can know with absolute certainty that we're going to be in heaven when we die. But we don't really know what tomorrow holds, do we? Right? James talks about that. James, the Lord's brother, you know. You shouldn't really say, today I'll do this, tomorrow I'll do that. I'm going to go here or there, buy and sell. i got all these plans. You really ought to say, if the Lord wills. We don't know what tomorrow holds. You know, we've experienced, and I'm sure everyone in this room has, lots of examples throughout our journey in life where we're blindsided by something completely unexpected, out of left field, rocks your world. And then, you know, one minute you're going through the motions of a normal routine, whatever you're doing, and the next minute, boom, everything changes, and your mind becomes consumed with this new reality, this new incident. And it, you can't sleep at night. You're dealing with it. Uh, it could be tragedy. It could be heartache. It could be a crisis. It could be any number of things. We've been there. Why? Because we don't know what tomorrow holds. So we are simply take one day at a time. And that's what faith is all about. Faith is the substance of things hoped for, the evidence of things not seen. If you can see it, you don't hope for it, right? <clears throat> um, in the early service, I forgot to grab water. And so... I was hoping someone would bring me water, and Matt graciously realized my predicament and ran and got me this cup of water. I think it was you, right? Well, here in the second service, I don't have to hope for a cup of water. Why? Because I can see it. It's right there, right? So a sovereign knows where he's coming from, knows where he's going, and, and we don't, right? And when you think about Jesus, just know that he's right there with you wherever you go. Uh, in John's Gospel, remember John, the, the one who under the inspiration of the Spirit wrote Revelation, wrote five books of the New Testament. He wrote his Gospel, 
that bears his name. And then he wrote those three letters that bear his name, 1st, 2nd, and 3rd John. He wrote the Gospel of John in 70 AD, and then near the end of his life, he wrote the three epistles and the book of Revelation right within the same five or ten years. And he had this to say, the word, that's Jesus, became flesh and dwelt among us, and we beheld his glory, the glory as of the only begotten of the Father. As we said, you know, in Hebrews, Jesus reveals the fullness of who God is. Um, he goes on to say, no one has seen God at any time. The only begotten Son who is in the bosom of the Father, he has declared him. Well, what in the world does that mean? What does John mean by that Jesus Christ declares God? That word declared is used ten times in the New Testament. It's the word exegemi. Exegemi. I'm sorry, six times in the New Testament, not ten, six times. And it means to make known in great detail. Let me give you a couple of examples. In Acts 21, when Paul is talking to James, the Lord's brother, the text reads, When he had greeted them, he told in detail. Those three words in English, told in detail. That's the translation of exegetomai, to, to tell in great detail. Or do you remember the story when Jesus, after the resurrection, met the two uh, disciples on the road to Emmaus? And they started having a conversation. They thought they were talking to a stranger. They didn't know it was the Lord. And then eventually... You know, they have a meal together and they realize, oh, we're talking to the Lord. And then Luke tells us in Luke 24, they went back uh, to tell the other disciples. And he uses this word, exegetomai, they told about everything that had just happened on the road. Now, do you think they just gave a passing high-level summary? Oh, yeah, by the way, pass the potatoes. We saw Jesus a little bit ago. No, no, no. You can bet they were ecstatic and just giving every blow by blow. And then he said this, and then he said that, and then we went here, and then we did this. They wanted to give great detail. Six times it's used. We see it in, the, uh, in Acts 15, the Jerusalem Council, when the early church got, gathered together all of the early church leaders, and, and they discussed the Jew and Gentile controversy and how, how Gentiles can be saved without keeping the law and the whole notion of grace and what that really means and so forth. And when Simon and Paul and Barnabas declared, the text says, a detailed testimony. That's that word. So you go back to John 1.18, Jesus Christ reveals every detail about the eternal Godhead. So as you think about the Lord this year and you keep your eyes fixed on Him as Hebrews tells us to do, remember, you're looking at God. This is the eternal creator of the universe. Jesus did not come into existence in Bethlehem 2,000 years ago. Unbelievers, secularists, um, they might suggest that because, of course, nobody can d deny the historicity of Jesus. He's the most historically attested human being that ever walked the planet. But in an unbeliever's mind, he's just another human being who was born 2,000 years ago. Not true. He's eternal. In going back to John's Gospel in John 18, Pilate said to him, Are you a king then? And Jesus answered, You say rightly that I am a king, and for this cause I was born, and for this cause I have come into the world. Why did he come into the world in Bethlehem 2,000 years ago? That I should bear witness to the truth. And everyone who is of the truth hears my voice. It's going to be critical this year that we be able to separate truth from fiction. It's unreal the amount of deception that's, that's taking place. And the only way we're going to be able to do that is if we keep our eyes fixed on the truth. Uh, Paul told us in Colossians that Jesus is the image of the invisible God. Ethan, the Ezraite, in his psalm, Psalm 89, says, 
I will make him my firstborn. So Jesus eternally exists, but at Bethlehem, he came in the form of human flesh. The word became flesh. He put on skin and bones and so he could take our place on the cross. And when we finally see Jesus face to face, we will be looking at a sovereign one. All of the stereotypes and precious depictions, however artistic they are, all of the man-made images, the other limited caricatures of him that we have conceived in our minds, inadequate as they are, will melt away the moment we look into the face of our Savior and the King of Kings. So his sovereign identity. But if we go back to verse 5, we see a second foundational fact, and that is his saving ability. Because the book of Revelation tells us why he came. To him who loved us and washed us from our sins in his own blood. See, the Bible, again, Genesis and Revelation, beginning and end, starts with the shed blood as being necessary for atonement. Remember, when Adam and Eve sinned, what's the first thing God did? He slayed a couple of animals so that he could cover Adam and Eve with their sins, symbolizing and foreshadowing the ultimate Lamb of God that takes away the sin of the world. Uh, the Bible tells us, without the shedding of blood, there is no forgiveness of sins. And so here, in, in plain English, we read, to him who loved us and washed us from our own sins. The book of Hebrews talks about he's the once-for-all sacrifice. John, in his gospel, as I just quoted a moment ago, tells us at the beginning that he's the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. His saving ability. Where would we be? If God hadn't taken that first step, we rebelled against God because we have free will. God didn't force us to sin. We sin of our own choice. And that sin comes at a steep penalty. But then God took the extraordinary step of rescuing us from our own predicament. The Bible says Jesus will save his people from their sins. Paul says Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners. <clears throat> he says in Galatians, the first letter Paul wrote, that he loved me and gave himself for me. That's the God that we serve, a Savior. He's not just sovereign, but he's a Savior. Jesus in the upper room said, Greater love has no one than this, than to lay down one's life for his friends. Theologically, Paul explains it this way in Romans, his magnum opus. Man has a problem. He sinned against God and deserves hell. But God demonstrates his own love toward us in that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. The old King James has yet sinners. Uh, I like that. The idea is that here is that even though we're sinners, Christ died for us, right? You know, in our minds, it's hard not to think in terms of valuing certain people more highly than others. We've been conditioned to think that way. Uh, I can remember as a youngster in school in the uh, government mind control programs, uh, they were conditioning us that not all human life is valuable. And they would give you those exercises. Some of you will remember this, where you'd get into small groups and you'd have this exercise where there's four people that are on a boat that's going down, sinking in the middle of the ocean, but you only have three life preservers. And as a group, you've got to decide which person you're going to let die. And you've got a doctor, a lawyer, an engineer, and you know, whatever. 
And you've got to sit there and decide who's more valuable. That was just conditioning to make us think that, that you know, some people are more valuable than others. You've all know Harari, as I cited in my latest book, talks about how most people don't contribute anything in society. society. They're just useless. And all we need them for is their data. But really, other than that, they're useless. That's why the Luciferians have been trying to get rid of people, the depopulation program, eugenics and all that. They just want to get rid of people. But notice... The Bible says we're all sinners. We're all in the same boat. The ground is level at the foot of the cross, and, and, and Christ died for all of us. If we go back to our text in verse 6, he goes on to explain kind of one of the benefits of being part of the family of God, and that is that those who by faith have received God's payment on our behalf, he makes us kings and priests to his God and Father. To him be glory and dominion forever. And ever. This John is so in the spirit here, so amazed at what he's writing that he provides this culminating, you know, benediction of praise. Amen. It, it's, it, it's a cognate in Greek, it's amen. It's just transliterating letter for letter. Amen. It means so be it. Yes, Lord, right? Because of Christ's saving work, you and I, if you know the Lord, are now a kingdom and priests with the with a purpose now and forever of serving God. That's our, that's our goal. We are, as Paul says, joint heirs with Christ. If we're children of God, then we're heirs, heirs of God and joint heirs with Christ. In other words, there are privileges that come with being identified with Christ. When we get saved and become part of the family of God, we're no longer paupers. We're, we're royalty. We're part of God's family. We are positionally in Him. And what does the Bible tell us about Christ? He's appointed heir of all things. So what is Christ's inheritance? All things. What is our inheritance? All things. We will rule with Him. We'll reign with Him. We'll serve with Him in the kingdom. You know, just imagine that for a moment. No one... Whoever walked this earth has greater standing, more prestige, more fame, more power, more riches, more honor, more glory than Jesus Christ himself. No one. Not the wealthiest evil member of the Luciferian cabal, not the David Rockefellers of the world, not the Klaus Schwabs, not the Hitlers, not all the tyrants who've achieved a measure of success in their dominating attempts to dominate the world and, and, and usher in their kingdoms. None of the Roman emperors, not Nebuchadnezzar, none of the ancient leaders, nobody, no matter how much money you have, how powerful you are, how prestigious you are, nobody can compare to Christ. And here's the key. You and I, if you know the Lord, are joint heirs with him. We know that guy. I mean, so many analogies come to mind. I, I read a story this week. Uh, I was thinking a lot about football. I don't know why. But uh, anyway, uh, about, you know, an obscure kicker that played with Tom Brady for two or three years, many years ago when he was with the Patriots. And that guy came, brought his family to a football game where Brady was playing this week. And Brady recognized him. They went down and said, hey, I know that guy. He's with me. Y'all come on down to the field. 
Why? Because they knew someone important. They knew a VIP, Tom Brady, right? Man, that's nothing uh, compared to Christ. We know Christ, right? We know Christ. So his sovereign identity, his saving ability, and then, and now we get to the, to the good part, right? Here we go, as Dak Prescott would say. Here we go. This is the whole point of Revelation. This is it, right? The main theme of the book is Christ is coming back. Verse 7, Behold, he is coming with clouds, and every eye will see him, even they who pierced him. And all the tribes of the earth will mourn because of him. Even so, amen. I love that. Even those who pierced him. That's talking about Israel, obviously. You know, all through the book of Revelation, we see references to Israel. The book of Revelation is very Jewish in nature. It's about the return of Christ, not only to set up his kingdom on the earth, but to fulfill the promises to his chosen nation of Israel. Jesus himself said in that famous sermon that he gave from the Mount of Olives just a day before he was betrayed and arrested in the garden, that the whole world will see the Son of Man coming on the clouds. He, in that same sermon, he goes on to say, when the Son of Man comes in his glory and all the holy angels with him, then he's going to sit on the throne of his glory, his scheduled activity. And I know it hasn't happened yet. And I know we've been waiting 2,000 years so far for it to happen. But it's going to happen. Just as every prophecy related to Christ's first advent was fulfilled literally, Every prophecy related to a second advent is going to be fulfilled literally. And what's so exciting about the day and age in which we live is that as we look at the signs of the times, the reemergence of Israel as a nation for the first time in 1,800 years, uh, the one world system, the one world currency all falling into place, uh, the, the, the technological system to usher in the mark of the beast, um, you know, the, the globalist agenda all around the world and the dis destruction of nation states and national sovereignty. So many things that even as recently as 50 years ago, nobody could have envisioned. And yet now it's all coming together. And we just can't help but wonder and ask, could it be in our lifetime? And I'm even more blunt than that. Could it be this year? <laughs> could it be today? Right? His scheduled activity, the book of Revelation tells us about his return. I saw heaven open, and behold, a white horse. And he who sat on him is called faithful and true, and in righteousness he judges and makes when he comes back, and he takes the throne. And then finally, his stated eternality. His stated eternality. Verse 8 reminds us that, as I said, Jesus is outside of time, space, and matter. He's the Alpha and Omega, the first letter of the Greek alphabet, the last letter of the Greek alphabet, the beginning and the end. Notice who is and who was and who is to come, the Almighty. I love this word, Almighty. This one is used ten times in the Greek New Testament. It's a compound word from kratos, meaning might or power, and pos, meaning all or every. The idea here is he's the one who has all the power. All power belongs to him. In that same passage we were just looking at in Revelation chapter 19, when Christ comes back, he, the same word... Uh, Pantocrator is, is translated omnipotent. So you got almighty, omnipotent, same word, just translated differently in English for some reason. I'm not sure why they did, but that's a good word. Almighty means omnipotent. In English, it's a compound word meaning omni, all potent, powerful, all powerful. That's who Christ is. And only an eternal one can say that. 
See, the Antichrist is subject to time, space, and matter. He may be indwelt by Satan himself, and I believe he will be, according to 2 Thessalonians 2, but he's still subject to time, space, and matter, but not Christ. Uh, he is the Alpha and Omega. You see this again and again throughout the Old and New Testaments alike in Hebrew and Greek, the first and the last, Isaiah said. I am he, I am the first, and I am also the last. What does this mean? God is right here with us at all times. This is what encouraged me as I was thinking about that, this passage this week going into next uh, year. When we're in a valley, Christ is with us. Psalm 23, right? If we run on ahead to get to our destination more quickly, guess what? He's already there. If we run back to where we started, no, God's already there. God is there. David said, where can we go from his presence? Where can we go from his presence? Moses said, from everlasting to everlasting, you are God. So we live day to day. We think in terms of cause and effect, time, space, matter. Today's December 31st. Tomorrow's January 1st. This is 2023. Tomorrow's 2024. You know, I'd live and die by my calendar. We've got a very busy conference schedule between now and, and really April. I'm excited about it. I'm looking forward to it. I check my calendar every day podcasts, appointments, interviews, uh, phone calls, things like that. We all live day to day. We live in a cause and effect, time, space, and matter. But now more than ever, because the days are evil, we need to remember that we serve an everlasting God who's bigger than all of this. Paul said, Jesus is before all things, and in him all things consist. That's the Jesus Christ that the book of Revelation unveils his sovereign identity his saving ability his scheduled activity and his stated eternality so do you know him i suspect that most people here today know the lord positionally you've trusted in christ you've been born again by faith but do you really know him as he's revealed in the word of god are you keeping your eyes fixed on him here's the takeaway jesus is god he came to die for you, and He's coming again to rescue you from this present evil age. So trust in Him. Amen? Amen. Let's pray. Father, thank You for this reminder from uh, the book of Revelation. Lord, we are just in awe, uh, awestruck, as the words of that song we sang earlier say, awestruck at a mighty God that we serve. Lord, we love You. We thank you. Forgive our lack of faith. Forgive us when we aren't plugged in and focused on you and distracted by the cares of this world. Lord, help us to do better in this coming year and to keep our eyes fixed on you. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Hey, let's all stand.